You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, across the world, scientists are calling for the need to cut our global emissions by 2030 in order to avoid climate catastrophe. They say we're running out of time to come up with new ways to live sustainably. But what if we had solutions in front of us all along? Hawaii U.S. Senator Brian Schatz chairs the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, and the climate crisis is at the top of his to-do list. He says the time is now to incorporate indigenous practices into the fight against climate change. Here's Schatz at a committee roundtable back in March. I'm more interested in what we on this panel and what we in this Congress can learn from Native communities in terms of resource management and uh, not just adaptation to climate change, but um, developing solutions uh, in the direction of climate action. And so climate solutions are not exclusively found in spreadsheets or in tax credits uh, or in incentives or even in the regulatory area. It is in the actual physical restoration of the land and the water and our streams and our lakes. And so um, that native wisdom has to be incorporated into um, any climate policy that we have. You know, the U.S. National Science Foundation is to sponsor a virtual workshop that kicks off today to come up with uh, just those climate solutions. Kelsey Amos is the chief operating officer of Purple Maya, an educational nonprofit. The name refers to the unique color of the blossom of the banana plant. Amos spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. The goal with the workshop is to bring together cultural practitioners here in Hawaii as well as indigenous peoples uh, in Hawaii, Kanakamaoli, as well as nationally and internationally with scientists from diverse disciplines as well as experts from different fields and, and stakeholders and, um, and sectors of society to get together and sort of brainstorm together what are uh, projects that we could undertake in the next one to three years uh, that would really take biocultural restoration um, to the next level in, in terms of sort of amplifying its, its potential for positive, positive impacts on society for everybody. Can we hone in on this term, biocultural restoration? For listeners who might not have heard that term, I'm not sure I heard that term before <laughs> I had the yeah. opportunity to learn about this workshop. Yeah, so it's a term that my understanding, I'm not a scientist, but uh, in putting together this workshop and in working with our collaborators on that, my understanding is that coastal biocultural restoration comes out of systems ecology. So I guess that's a branch of ecology that focuses in on social ecological systems. So basically the idea that humans are a part of nature, we're a part of the ecologies that we're in. We can't just look at restoring ecosystems by themselves. We have to look at ecosystems in connection with human cultures and human populations. So here in Hawaii, pre-contact, Native Hawaiians had a social ecosystem that, that was, it was biocultural, right? It was their culture was dependent on certain species existing. They fostered biodiversity in the way that they grew their food and harvested their fish. And, and it kind of worked together to ensure abundance for everyone and, and the health of the whole social ecological system, right? When we talk about restoration of that, it's the efforts that have been undertaken um, by nonprofits and conservation groups and community organizations, many times Hawaiian-led, um, to rebuild those structures that have the capacity to feed everyone and foster biodiversity and all these other ecosystem services like refilling the watershed and having healthy coral reefs and all those kinds of things that work as a system together. Hmm. And you have this workshop taking place from May 13th to May 17th mm -hmm. with a bunch of different speakers coming to talk on this subject. Is there anyone that you are particularly excited about listening to or working with on this topic? You know, I'm, I'm excited about the mix. Uh, so we have four different sort of subtopics within the workshop. One is around resilience to flooding and food security. Another is around computational network systems uh, and integrating those with indigenous knowledge for kind of coastal monitoring and resource management. Another is around sustainable and regenerative economic development. And another is about higher education for indigenous peoples in STEM and land and resource management. Um, that's a lot, of, a lot of topics we're kind of packing in there. But I'm excited, for example, in the flooding one, we have a speaker 
from Finland, who kind of has an Arctic, Arctic perspective on climate change and resilience and flooding as it impacts them there. But we've also got a speaker out of Chaminade University uh, who, who's familiar with the Hawaii and Pacific Islands context when it comes to flooding and resilience. Uh, and then we're actually going to have some groups from Louisiana. It's a group of three tribes working in Louisiana on flooding. So I'm just really excited about um, the convergence of those different kinds of perspectives together and the sharing across borders and, um, and, and context to see, you know, what what are the differences, but also what are the, the similarities and, and the parallels that everyone shares. Hmm. You know, it's not often when we are discussing climate change that we really look forward to having those conversations. <laughs> but in, in describing this workshop, I'm, I have the press release in front of me, there's a lot of enthusiasm for having this type of conversation and incorporating these indigenous practices and these indigenous understandings of landscapes. Would you say that the tone of the people who are participating in this workshop is one of hope? I, I hope so. I'm trying to foster that. I mean, we're everybody, the whole world is coming off of a really tough year, the pandemic, and, and just also climate change is a looming crisis that, that, you know, hasn't gone away because there's a pandemic. It's still there. So I, I'm, I think we're trying to foster an atmosphere of hope and creativity and trying to say, like, okay, let's hear from the practitioners who have been on the ground, who have been doing this for sometimes 20, 30, you know, many years. Um, let's hear about what their what their gaps and barriers are that they're facing, and then let's try to ideate solutions, um, you know, for them or with them, um, in, in in the way that they're comfortable doing. Um, so yeah, it, it's not a, a passive workshop where you're just going to hear a bunch of presentations, but we're actually asking people to come and participate um, and bring their expertise because we. We know more when we're all together, right, when we're talking across disciplines and across sectors. And so that's the hopeful part about it, I guess, is that if you bring a bunch of people together, um, we may be able to come up with some good ideas. I should mention that this is a workshop of the NSF Convergence Accelerator. So it is going to be reported to the NSF. And, and there's hope that, you know, we're making the case to bodies like the NSF about how Indigenous knowledge should have a role in science and in climate change mitigation and in sustainable development. And there's hopeful signs. I was just thinking again about Senator Brian Schatz's statement I think he made a couple weeks back now about how, what did he call it, native wisdom uh, needs to be part of climate policy. So I think there's signs like this that, that people in places of power and leadership are starting to understand that. And so how to sort of get in front of that, right, to, so, to sort of be able to say this is the way that things should go as far as the projects that should be pursued and how they should be pursued, right? Considerations like protections for Indigenous knowledge, data sovereignty, making sure that these kinds of partnerships with Indigenous communities happen in the correct kinds of ways. I was going to bring that up exactly because I, I had underlined U.S. National Science Foundation's Convergence Accelerator Program to ask you about because it seemed a little anachronistic almost, the idea that this type of workshop would be funded by the U.S. government, which is historically not inclusive to indigenous wisdom. So, <laughs> yeah. so thank you yeah. for touching on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there are challenges that remain part of this workshop. We're working through those, I think, but keeping that optimistic mindset that if we're going to if we're going to solve some of these problems related to climate change and ecosystem loss and the continuance and thriving of Native cultures, then the time is now. Hmm. I guess stepping back for a moment, because you do have participants, as you said, from many, many different places. Looking at Hawaii, why do you think that Hawaii is a particularly good template to employ this type of model of biocultural restoration in order to combat climate change on, on one front, but also potentially restore some historic injustices? Yeah, I, I think a lot of folks have, have written and talked about this. You know, one um, major inspiration for this workshop is the 2018 special issue of a science journal called Sustainability. It was edited by uh, 
by Kavika Winter, Noah Lincoln, and Kevin Chang, uh, who are all scientists and, and practitioners here in Hawaii. I believe it was historic in terms of it was the most scientific article authored by Native Hawaiians, and, and I think that special issue also was something like 50% women authors. So, and so they spoke to in that, you know, how Hawaii can be a model for the world and, and that there's sort of unique things going on with this idea of biocultural restoration here in Hawaii that makes Hawaii something of a leader, hopefully, in that space. Not to say that we're the only folks doing There's amazing things going on in other spaces, and I think the term biocultural restoration comes out of the work of a lot of other Native scientists as well. But I think we're uniquely positioned to be able to model what it looks like for a society to take Indigenous knowledge seriously and actually integrate that into its land use management and and its politics. I mean, that's a contentious thing, and we're by no means perfect. There's a lot um, still to go in terms of dealing with occupation and, and these kinds of things. But, but yeah, I think we can be an example to the world. I mean, you mentioned a lot just in that answer alone in terms of goals of land use management and as well as our political system and all the ways in which this ideology can factor in and have a place there. But... Mm-hmm. If you want to look at kind of the simplest understanding of this idea that we are part of nature, that humankind Mm -hmm. has a place in the wild and should see itself as part of that system, we'll put you on the spot a little bit here. What is a way someone could just walk out of their door today and start to notice what's around them? Hmm. Well, one thing could be to try to find what's going on with the moon. That's sort of a trendy thing right now, but in all seriousness, to, to think about the moment in time we're in, in, in past times and in other places, people think about time not by the calendar or, or you know, their app on their phone, but um, by moon cycles. So, I mean, what, what moon is it, right? We're coming up on a new moon, and um, what's the significance of that? I guess I think sort of taking, especially after the year that we've had of, for many of us, not all of us, many of us on our devices, seeking connection that way, but to kind of look at the sky, the birds, what you have around you, and sort of remember that you're here on this planet. Another great way is to just consider what you're having for lunch. That's sort of my personal way of connecting is to think about food. Food is what connects us, literally, the land and people. We eat everything that we eat eat comes from the land. So to be thinking about where did your lunch come from? Who grew it? Was it shipped here or did it grow here? And what are the impacts of, of, of that system that we're all a part of? Hmm. Well, wonderful. The, the panel starts, or the workshop starts on May 13th. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know prior to its beginning? Uh, yeah, I think just this workshop doesn't come out of nowhere. I think it comes as part of a long history of folks that have created these spaces on the ground of biocultural restoration. Biocultural restoration is kind of a scientific term that a lot of people in the sciences have fought to to have it gain credibility and currency, and thank goodness they have. But, you know, before we even had that term, people talked about hipuka or pu'uhonua, or they just, you know, talked about, like, wow, you know, I got to visit, you know, somebody started a farm or or I visited this sacred place that somebody's been taking care of. And so, uh, yeah, just, just knowing that there's been a lot of work on the ground of people sort of reasserting their sovereignty over their spaces and, and reasserting their right and their responsibility to care for the land around them. And my hope is that we're able to continue building on that work, make it bigger, because there's a lot of spaces and places and people out there that need that kind of healing and support. That was Kelsey Amos, one of the organizers of the virtual workshop on coastal biocultural restoration. It starts today at 2.30 p.m. and runs through Monday. It's not too late to register. We'll have links on our website.
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual open house Sunday, May 16th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Sky Nelson Isaacs, author of Leap to Wholeness. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how the world is programmed to help us grow, heal, and adapt. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pineapple Tweed Public Relations and Marketing, believing in the value of creating a more informed public, a supporter of the reporting, news coverage, and storytelling heard daily on HPR. It is now time for a reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Kevin Dayton has a story about the latest projections with Rails ridership. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Catherine. How are you? Good. So... What can you tell us about uh, these new numbers? Well, we don't know a whole lot. Um, there was a uh, basically the, uh, the new rail CEO, Lori Kahikina, um, made an appearance on the Honolulu Star Advertiser Spotlight program yesterday and made some very general brief statements um, about ridership projections. And maybe a little bit of background here would be helpful before we get into the details. But so rail ridership, you would you would know this very well. Both of us have been covering this project for years and years. Rail ridership has been a controversial subject because people have questioned the city's numbers, and of course, the ridership is important because what do you get for your money, right? If if you're if uh, not many people are using the system, then it doesn't have much of an impact on traffic. Um, if you go back to about 2005, this is way back now. The city was projecting there'd be about 185,000 daily riders if the system went to Manoa. Now, of course, that isn't what we got. The system goes from Kapolei to Alamoana Center, or it's supposed to go, the, the full 20 miles. Um, and the ridership projections were then adjusted downwards for the environmental impact statement um, that, that followed uh, for, for basically the new alignment. So what, we're, what we've been talking about for all these years, for, for recent years, has been uh, about 104,300 passengers were projected to board the system each weekday in 2019, and 119,600 were supposed to board the system each weekday by 2030. Um, obviously, those numbers are way out of date. Nobody was boarding the system in 2019 because the system wasn't open to the public and still isn't today. So one of the questions that sort of hovered around all this is, are those numbers still accurate or should they be updated? And as far as anybody knows, uh, Hart has never publicly updated what those ridership projections are. And that's why it was interesting what, what uh, Ms. Kahikina had to say yesterday, which was during the course of that presentation on the Spotlight program. She said um, that there had been an observation that the ridership projections dropped from the time we started the project until after the pandemic. Um, and she didn't get much any, any more specific than that, but it raised the possibility, A, that there are new projections that haven't been released to the public yet, and B, that they might not have a lot of good news. Yeah, I mean, you know, with this pandemic, it has disrupted everything, and, you know, I'm not really sure how you get a good handle on the numbers because, you know, people stopped riding the bus, right? And, and, uh, and people were, were nervous about that. Uh, so what does that exactly. mean with people's comfort yeah. levels getting back to public transportation? What does it mean for rail whenever it's built? One of the more alarming signals was that the, the bus ridership had been declining for years, even before the pandemic. And uh, you have some folks like, uh, you know, uh, Panos, I'm probably going to mangle his name. I should have looked this up. Prevederos. Can you say mm -hmm. that? You just interviewed <laughs> <Yeah>. him recently. <laughs> Um, he he had uh, he's been a longtime critic of rail to be fair, but he, his point is that um, things across the mainland have shown that you know there was a steep drop off in transit for obvious reasons during the pandemic, and there are some experts who are projecting that even in cities such as New York City or Atlanta, where they have very well developed systems, um, that they should expect experts are projecting that they should expect that they'll see a permanent 20% drop off. Now, others would say that, you know, Panos has been criticizing the project and projecting gloom and doom forever. But it is interesting that we haven't seen 
uh, you know, clearer, updated projections for what the ridership will be. Right. And I'm told that, you know, the bulk of the ridership was supposed to come, you know, in the, the city center area. And so, you know, with all the calls to stop at middle or pause it somewhere else, you know, how will that affect that picture? You know, are people really going to want to ride to Middle Street or Lagoon Drive or wherever uh, versus Ala Moana? So, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll get a better handle from uh, heart officials on exactly what they're talking about. Yeah, we, and, and we've requested, so, you know, whatever they have, we'd, we'd like to see whatever the updated numbers are. And the, and the issue that you raise is huge because that last four miles of the rail project um, on through the city center is just critical to the project. Um, and it's, it's been the part that's really caused the price escalations and all the other problems. Um, but Lori Kahikina said uh, yesterday that, you know, we can't stop at Middle Street because, um, you, you know, it would, it would eliminate the Dillingham Corridor. It would, it would basically cut off a whole set of riders that they were hoping would use the system. And as you know, Dillingham Corridor is incredibly dense and is, and is heavily used. You know, I, I remember Hart suggesting that they had to go through Dillingham Corridor because, you know, and I put, in, put this in quotes, that's where the riders are. So the Middle Street option for a variety of, of reasons, uh, Lori would say, is, is just not doable. It's not, it's not um, it won't work. Yeah, and when we talked to Colleen Hondabusa yesterday, she did say she wanted the best information. So hopefully we will get the, you know, most updated figures to make a decision on, on whether or not we pause or keep on going. Absolutely, and it, it sort of stands to reason that, that the federal government would have insisted on some sort of updated ridership projections as the city does puts together its final recovery plan. As you may remember that we're supposed to be doing a recovery plan that demonstrates we have the ways and means to finish this project. The FTA, our Federal Transit Administration, wants to see that. One would assume this would be part of the information that they would demand that the city provide. Okay, well, we will be waiting with bated breath, but thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you very much. That was Kevin uh, Dayton with today's Reality Check. To read the full story on rail, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by donating ocean shipping for food bank networks, including Oahu's Hawaii Food Bank and neighbor island food banks. Matson.com. May marks Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And to highlight the Pacific Island experience, we put the spotlight on a nonprofit whose mission is to advance Pacific Island media content and to grow the pool of Pacific Island talent to be able to tell their stories. Here's a clip from the Hula production, Hola Mai Pele. Right side of the canoe, you will do your Valina step on the right side first. And those on the left side of the canoe, you will do your Valina step on the left side of the canoe. Hula is a reflection of life. Hula is a way of retelling history. Ah. What hula does is it transports us from this world into another. It is that vehicle that makes us feel and think and be very Hawaiian. Holomai Pele is the epic saga of Pele, goddess of the volcano, and her youngest sister, Hiiaka. We honor the powers of Pele and Hiiaka by dancing the myth.
That was Hollow My Pele. The production was dip- distributed across the public broadcasting system years ago. It was produced by PIC, Pacific Islanders in Communications, which is funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We talked to Leanne Ferrer, Executive Director of Pacific Islanders in Communications, about what's in store this year. PIC's 30th anniversary is going to be a little more low-key in our 25th anniversary we had a luau and we held a summit, but this year we're going to, because we can't get together and everything is virtual, we're going to um, have screenings, conversations with um, people from our documentaries and films, and workshops for filmmakers and media makers. So it'll be um, more of the same that we offer, but a little more amped up. Now, I did see on PBS Hawaii that you are bringing back some of the best of, right? The oldies and goodies? This last early spring, late winter, we did oldies but goodies. Pick owns five films in their libraries. The rest of the films our filmmakers own themselves, but we hold the rights to them. So we partnered with PBS Hawaii, and they aired our films like One Voice, which is a documentary about the Kamehameha Song Contest leaders, not necessarily the song contest, but the leaders and how they prepare for the song contest. And then we also had Black Grace, which is a Maori dance troupe that um, went to perform at Jacob's Pillow and following their journey. And then another one that we really had a great response to was Holomai Pele, and that was one of our first films for great performances, and we got so much feedback. It is about the um, hula. The, it, it's almost like a play called Holomai Pele, and that was done by the Kanaka Ole sisters. Yes, and full disclosure, I happened to be on the pick board when we executive produced that production. Uh, you know, in those early days, it was uh, Lurleen McGregor and uh, Carlene Tani, uh, you know, Heather Juni. Uh, so lots of uh, important uh, people who contributed to PIC's success today. Yes, and I love how it comes full circle. And, you know, it was Pacific Islander producers that fought for and created PIC. We had producers like Heather Juni, who you mentioned, and Puhi Pao and Joan Lander, and they just went to CPB and said, we would like money to have our Pacific Islander content broadcast over PBS. The same way they were giving money to Asian American, Latino, Black, and Native American groups. Yes, because uh, the voices of the Pacific Islanders needed to be heard on the public broadcasting system. Definitely, and that's what PIC does. We amplify our, the voices and share our stories throughout the globe. Well, I think you must be very proud just of the quality of films that you are producing today. A lot of them are just wonderful stories told with a unique perspective uh, and that just really, really rings true. I think that's what I just love about about the films uh, that PIC has produced. Thank you, Catherine. And talking about new stories, we are celebrating our 10th season of our series, Pacific Heartbeat. It plays nationwide on PBS. PBS Hawaii airs it on Saturday nights at 8, and it started on May 1st. So there's still a few weeks to enjoy different episodes of Pacific Heartbeat. And I did happen to catch on PBS Hawaii Real Wahine, which showcased a lot of the uh, early talent, uh, some of our uh, wonderful producers, like Heather Juni, uh, Marlene Booth, Lisa Altieri. And it was really nice to, to give them uh, credit, you know, Victoria Keith, the folks that kind of paved the way. Yes, Myrna Mai. So that series, Real Wahine of Hawaii, was created by... Hawaii Women in Filmmaking, and then after they produced, now they're in their, they're producing their third season right now, but after they finished creating two seasons, we acquired it, and we just shared it or streamed it 
on our series Pacific Pulse, which is on our YouTube channel. So if anybody is interested, and everybody should be, to see terrific stories from the Pacific, terrific stories about our Wahine filmmakers and and um, both documentaries and non uh, fiction and nonfiction, then go to our website, piccom.org, P-I-C-C-O-M.org, and click on Pacific Pulse, and it'll take you to a list where you can choose what short films you want to watch. And then is there anything people need to know if they are interested in, uh, in applying for PIC support, you know, for their productions? Yes. If you're in filmmaking and you're interested in PIC support, again, go on our website, PICCOM.org, and click on Opportunities. We have funding for one-hour documentaries, and then we also have funding for short films, up to 15 minutes, fiction or nonfiction. And right now, we are in our short film open call, and that closes mid-May. And then in July, we'll have our longer format documentary call. Check it out, and feel free to email us with any questions. Okay, and then anything else that you've got coming up? So for the rest of our 30th anniversary, we will partner with more film festivals. We already had a great partnership with HIF and their Indigenous Lens Showcase. And coming up is CAMFest and the Asian Pacific Virtual Showcase. So CAMFest is in San Francisco. Asian Pacific Virtual Showcase is in L.A. But now that everything is virtual, you can check them out and get tickets for our films. So think about doing that. And we have some special artist conversations coming up, and they're available for audiences around the globe. Our first one is scheduled for May 20th. And it's going to be with acclaimed musician and actor, Stan Walker. And he's a Maori singer and actor who won Australian Idol. And he's going to discuss his documentary, Stan, that is in our Pacific Heartbeat series. It, it'll be great. He, he's a star in Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> so I want everyone here to get to know who he is. Okay. Well, it sounds like you've got a, a wonderful lineup and there's lots to celebrate this year. There is, and thank you for helping us celebrate. Well, happy birthday, happy anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much. Aloha. That was Leanne Ferrer, Executive Director of PIC, Pacific Islanders in Communications, a nonprofit which marks its 30th anniversary this year. Hats off to their efforts to grow the pool of Pacific Island filmmakers to spread the stories of the Pacific Island experience across the globe. Support for HPR comes from Keiki Kaukau, maker of Hawaii-inspired wooden toys designed to represent the Aloha State and its unique blend of cultures. Play food sets, puzzles, games, and more at keikikaukau.com. You know, you've probably heard jokes about moving the church piano. Well, we have another one for you, and this story comes from Kauai. It seemed like a good idea at the time, restore a church organ donated in the early 1900s by Lydia Wilcox of a prominent Kama'aina family and member of the Ko'i congregation. The sounds from the pipes filled the space in the All Saints Episcopal Church in Kapa'a, but it turned out to be a much larger undertaking than anyone imagined. It meant renovating the space for a much bigger pipe organ. Retired church leader David Brown shares the story of the drawn-out process and the upcoming debut this weekend, as once again, organ music will fill the air, in part thanks to the technical expertise of Morris Wise. I was on the vestry of the church when we first decided to go into this project, and I was senior warden for five years, which is the, uh, the minister's sort of chosen person of the congregation. And I worked with Morris Wise, who's really our organ guru, in church. I've, I've worked with him 
and I've been involved in all aspects of the planning and that kind of stuff of the of the organ project. Well, the organ project, the sanctuary enhancement project, the roof replacement project, and all those right. kind of things. So you've got a big day coming up here this weekend. Yes, we do. So yes, we do. Share with our um, listeners. Actually, um, there is going to be the, the first concert is actually going to be Saturday evening, and it is for donors and members of the uh, church congregation only. Uh, this is the first time we'll we'll actually hear the organ being played. It will be played by Adam Pagan, who's a world-renowned organist who's uh, coming to the island. And then Sunday, it will be played at the 9.30 service, Sunday morning. Our bishop is here from Honolulu. He's here to do confirmations, baptisms, and receiving somebody into the church. And then at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, there will also be a recital specifically for the public. And this one we've asked people to sign up for. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic and all this stuff, we're limited to about 50 people coming so the the evening one on saturday will be 50 people uh, the one on sunday will be 50 and i know there are a lot of people who would have liked to come but you know first come first served unfortunately okay so tell us how this project got underway well you you have to go back really to uh, 1925 which was the year that the uh, the church building the actual building uh was finished and in 1925, Mrs. Sam Wilcox, uh, sister-in-law of George Wilcox, who owned Grove Farm Plantation, Mrs. Wilcox donated the original organ to us. It was what they call a, it, the model was a coraphone, and it really was built for big houses. That was that was the idea, that people instead of having just a you know an upright piano or a grand piano, they could have this organ. So it, it was sized really for a large home. Anyway, it was purchased by Mrs. Wilcox, it was donated to the church and installed in the church. And it really was big enough for uh, our, our church at the time. Over the years, it suffered from the humidity, the salt air and all those kind of things. And in the 1980s, the first remodel was done. Uh, and um, at that time, it was expanded from 316 pipes to 422. So that's the 1980s. Go ahead now to 2015 and 2016. 2015, we started having problems with it, uh, what they call ciphers. When the organ was turned on, there was this high-pitched whistle, and someone had to go into the organ chamber, which was very difficult to get into. So by February 2016, we decided that it really needed to be decommissioned, and we would then restore the organ. Well, once we got into restoring we realized that actually the the humidity and the salt air and the termites and ants and all these kind of things had really done a number on the organ it was originally copper um, pipes there was leather a lot of leather work in there which was deteriorating in the uh, in the environment so what we decided to do then was to actually rebuild we would honor mrs wilcox's original gift by using as much of the original organ as we could but we would also expand it we would rebuild uh, a new organ. So, and actually the new organ has ended up, so the original started with 316 pipes, the new one is 1,270. So that gives you some idea of scale. It's a much bigger instrument. The project really started in 2016. We hoped it would be done by 2018, but there were a lot of delays of getting materials and things, and then this whole pandemic nonsense hit, and it, it was difficult to get things done so finally now we're what's that that's three years behind schedule but the organ is there the organ is installed there is a crew from rosales organ builders who are actually on site now as i speak and they are what they what they call voicing the organ so making the pipes sound like the pipes are supposed to sound and hopefully fingers crossed and all that other kind of stuff and please god <laughs> look after <laughs> us um saturday evening it will be played for the first time for the concert for donors and members of the church that's a lovely story and, and i know you probably had to make i guess more room for this larger holy organ. moly yes yes <laughs> it required us actually to reorganize the uh, what they call the sacristy which is where the the priest robes and everything and all the storage areas there are two areas to the right and the left of the altar as you look at the altar. So now as you look at the altar, the area to the right has been completely turned over to the organ chamber. To me, it looked like a big space, 
But the guys who put the organ pipes in said, whoa, it's only just big enough, you know. And then we, we changed the left-hand side. As you look at the altar once again, there is now the sacristy towards the back of the church. And in front of the sacristy and accessible actually from the church is a chapel. It's the Queen's Chapel. It's dedicated to King Kamehameha IV and Queen Emma, who are the Holy Sovereigns in the Episcopal Church. They're saints in the Episcopal Church of Hawaii. And also dedicated to Queen Liliokalani and Queen Kapiolani. This idea of trying to restore the organ, it reminds me of that story. You know, if you give a mouse a cookie... Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> yes. You really in a word, have... yes. Yeah, re- restoring the organ was a nice idea, but impractical. When, when we really looked at it, it was impractical. It was better to use what we could from the original organ and find a new sort of core piece for the organ, and that, that we found actually from a, it was a Catholic church in Timonium, Maryland, which was eliminating their organ. They were going mm. to praise music, I understand, something different. But anyway, they wanted to get rid of their organ, so we purchased the organ. We shipped the whole thing over to uh, Los Angeles, to Rosales Organ Builders. We shipped a lot of our parts from here, from Hawaii to Los Angeles, and Rosales Organ Builders also found a lot of other pipes from various places, new pipes pipes specifically made, other pipes that they, they were able to get their hands on. So those are the things that actually came into the new organ. Right, so it's an organ plus. <laughs> it's an organ plus, it is, yeah. And it, it really honors the gift of Mrs. Wilcox. You know, we could have just said, hey, let's just eliminate an organ. Let, let's go with piano. Actually, we have done that for the last five years. We've mm-hmm. really just used the piano. But Mrs. Wilcox donated an organ, and we wanted to retain that link with her, and the, uh, the new facade is much bigger than the old facade, but it incorporates all the elements from the original facade of the organ. So I think Mrs. Wilcox would, would be happy if, if she were here. Yeah, and so are any of her uh, descendants or her family members going to be there in attendance? Hopefully the, the Sloggett family will be there, uh, members of the Sloggett family, who are you know, linked to the Wilcox family. The Sloggett family has set up, well, years ago, set up a fund specifically for uh, All Saints Episcopal Church and other Episcopal churches on the island, and they um, make a, um, a donation to us every year. We put in for funding for various projects, and the uh, Sloggett Fund funds those projects within the limits of how much they've got available to them. Right, but thanks to the generosity then of that family and the donations from the community. Yes, yes. uh, Henry Digby Sloggett actually donated the land for the church, and the Sloggett family has been very supportive of of All Saints Episcopal Church. And we can't say enough about them. They they really are wonderful people. And so the the, uh, selection of uh, pieces that will be played at this concert... Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I, I, I'm as up in the air as you are. Okay, it'll be a surprise. <laughs> um, I know uh, well, Adam Pagan, as I said, is a world-renowned organist. I would imagine that he has worked with Morris Wise mm-hmm. on it, but the, uh, the, the, the program is it's, it's going to be a surprise to hear that instrument being played, and it's going to be a surprise to hear what is played on that instrument. Okay. And, I, and I'm really looking forward to that aspect of it. You know, and uh, also, just, just a mm-hmm. bit of information, Manuel Rosales, the, the crown jewel of his work, is the organ at the this concert hall. And if you look at the photographs of that, that is a magnificent instrument. And it is just so wonderful that Hawaii now has its own Rosales Opus 41. It follows behind some wonderful uh, work that Manuel has done. All right. Well, thank you so much, and, and, You're and very good welcome. luck this weekend. Thank, thank, thank you for t- taking the time to, to oh, talk with us. I really story. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Catherine. Bye-bye. Aloha. And so you have it, the debut of a reworked pipe organ this weekend at the All Saints Episcopal Church in Kapa'a. We heard from retired church leader David Brown. And now we tease you with a little of what's to be at this weekend concert. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company, believing that good corporate citizenship is one of the secrets to a successful communication strategy. 
HastingsAndPleadWell.com. Who is Jeff Bezos? Jeffrey Preston Bezos is an American internet entrepreneur, industrialist, media proprietor, and investor. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and that is Alexa, an invention of Jeff Bezos' sci-fi dreams. Our vision was that in the long term, it would become the Star Trek computer. But the creation of Alexa tells us about the man who built Amazon. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. You know, many times the stories that we air, you know, stirs up various emotions and thoughts in our listeners from enlightenment to anger and from frustration to joy. Sometimes those listeners share those emotions and thoughts with us via our talkback line. After listening to our interviews on rail this week, this listener says he was prompted to leave a question about the bus system. I'm calling from uh, Maui. It's Peter. And I was wondering why does the bus system have only racks for two bikes? Like on the mainland, the buses have uh, three or four uh, spaces in the front, and the buses on the mainland have also in the back for six uh, bicycles. I would ride, and probably I know 10 other people, they would ride to Kahului from Kihe with the bus, but unfortunately there's no way. It's like lottery, you know, either there are already two bikes on it and then you're stuck. And uh, they always say, oh, we need to get uh, rid of cars, but make something so people can use the bikes and commute with the bikes. And thanks for uh, having a great show. Hello. Another listener took the opportunity to vent about some of the political aspects of the stories we did this week. Hello, um, this is Stanley Kunitake, and I have a comment to make. I just got in touch with you folks and I like what you folks say because you know I get a feeling that Hawaii they forget that working people is the one that should count like when John Kennedy was president and I find my experience in Hawaii very troubling because of the fact that too much ultra left and liberal agenda and I do not like that anyway the point is I'm sure they're trying but it's very troubling when you hear that kind of things. Like, they don't value working people who are nonviolent and pay their taxes as much as, say, people who fall into a hard time. Like, they're saying, we're the one that caused them. Society, no, it's they have a free choice. And I think people should wake up. And I'm very troubled the way some of the politicians act. I won't name names, but that I think Hanabusa, um, Ariyoshi and all those people are good people, and they try to make Hawaii Aloha State. And and not only that, Akaka, Danny Noy, they've led the way. Don't spoil what what they did for us. Make it better. Anyway, that's my comment. And of course, Hawaii is still the best people in the world. But then, you know, let's not get it to our heads, please. Let's progress, not digress. Thank you. Bye. And mahalo, Stanley. We also received a couple of emails commemorating teachers that we weren't able to include in our shows last week as we celebrated Teacher Appreciation Week. Here's one. Our second grade teacher team at Waikiki Elementary School, which includes Mrs. Nagayama, Mr. Ari, Mrs. Shetalevsky, Miss Dana, and Miss Sherry, worked tirelessly, lovingly, patiently, expertly, flexibly, adaptively, personally, with great humor and humility. They are truly superheroes, and like the mighty morphin power, morphing Power Rangers, they combine perfectly to become a single titan. For this reason, please consider them as a singular entity and an eligible recipient of the Best Favorite Teacher Award. Each contributes individually and selflessly with their own superpower to give our children all the guidance and support they need unfailingly consistently they've been there for us in every stage and adaptation of school during this covid year we love them all and are eternally grateful for their hard work keeping our children safe educated interested and present respectfully sincerely and awestruck sean st louis and son takeshi the second appreciation email touched on the subject of an interview we did with the head of a university of hawaii program that featured silent teachers those who donate their body to the medical school. 
our program, uh, we call it a willed body program. It allows people the opportunity to will their body to an institute of education or research, not unlike they would will anything else that has value or possession. The human body is not considered property, of course, so the willed body program is run under the Anatomical Gift Act, and this allows us, for technical reasons, to convert somebody from a person to a cadaver. A cadaver is only a person who is donated for science and or education. And following uh, that segment, a listener wrote in, uh, Aloha, for Teacher Appreciation Week, I would like to thank my silent teacher. This is a member of our community who chose to donate his body for the purposes of student learning. Almost 20 years ago, I took gross anatomy at UH Manoa, which is a graduate course that explores the human body in great detail over the course of a full year. Over the course of the year, my lab group and I steadily worked our way through a thoughtful and respectful dissection of our silent teacher. I learned more through this experience than anything I could ever imagine. This learning served me well in my subsequent work with seniors in a healthcare setting, as well as my current position teaching human anatomy and physiology at Kapi'olani Community College. Thank you, silent teacher, for the wisdom you shared with me. I hope to have sufficiently honored your gift. And that was sent in by Amy Yamashiro. Well, did you hear something this week that was interesting to you or frustrated you or impressed you? Let us know. Call our Talkback line 792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org and we'll share your thoughts on a future show. Uh, that is it for today. Uh, tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa will be in an Aloha Friday show. Got feedback for us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.